first offering is the burnt offering. It is called the burnt offering because everything of the animal gets burnt in the flames. Nobody takes anything home. So, verse 3, If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he must present it as a flawless male. He must present it at the entrance of the meeting tent for its acceptance before Yahweh. So the first criteria now is not always have to be, not every sacrifice requires a male. Right? God's not sexist. He'll sacrifice females too. So um, it doesn't always have to be a male, but for this case it has to because the male has that headship, that authority here. So it has to be a male and it has to be perfect, flawless. Because this is one of the things we're going to talk about when we get to clean and unclean and especially discharges, but I briefly mentioned it last week, is that God requires perfection on every holistic level of the human. Mentally, spiritually, physically, socially, emotionally. And so you must realize that God is not just interested in you coming before him with a good heart or a clean heart. He's also interested in your body being perfect, your mind, your health, mental health being perfect, your emotional health being perfect. Now, I'm not saying that you can't come to God if you're not like that, because that's the whole point of the sacrificial system. We're not perfect in any way, and we need a sacrifice to get into his presence. But we know that the only way that you can actually have a perfect and good relationship with God is if you're perfect and good in every way yourself. The minute there's any kind of flaw, then you're not whole. And remember the first thing that God said in Genesis as he created things is it was good. And good means that you're functioning exactly the way that God designed you. If your body is not perfect, then your body is no longer functioning the way that God designed it to function. Why is it no longer functioning the way that God designed it to function? Because of sin. Now, let's say you have a birth defect. Do you have a birth defect because you sinned and God punished you with that? No. No. Let's say you're dying of cancer. Are you dying of cancer because you've had a, you've sinned and God is punishing you that way? Maybe, but not a guarantee. Okay, the Bible makes it very clear that if there's any kind of disease in your life, the first thing you should be doing is asking God, is this some consequence or punishment for sin in my life? If God says no, then it's just welcome to the world. The reality is, no, you did not get punished and become a sinner. Jesus made that very clear. Jesus, Jesus, why is this guy blind? His parents or him sin? And Jesus kind of like, no, neither one, you morons. Okay? Um, that's what he would say if he could. The reality is, no. But why is your body not functioning the way it should be? As a result of sin in the world. Okay? The world has fallen. It's broken because of sin. Creation is not working the way it should be. Your body is not working the way it should be. If it hadn't been for sin, you wouldn't have cancer. You wouldn't have a birth defect. It's not because of your specific sin, but it is because of the sin in the world and things aren't functioning right. Therefore, the reality is that your body, your mental health, your social health, your emotional health, physical, mental health, all that stuff is not functioning the way it should because of sin. Therefore, Sin is keeping you from being perfect, and being not being perfect is keeping you having from perfect relationship with God. Therefore, if something is going to die in your place, it must be perfect. It must be without physical blemish, and the best that you can do, figure out if this animal is mentally healthy and socially healthy and all that kind of stuff. Now, good thing is animals are less complicated than humans on those levels. 
And so God is saying that this thing truly has to be perfect because perfection is what's required to come into the presence of God. Now, God doesn't expect you to become that because that's the whole point of the sacrificial system and eventually Christ. But this is what I talked about last week with your body, with Moses' body shining like a sun after he came in the presence of God, that ultimately now those who are in Christ will be perfected body, mind, emotion, and soul. And then we will be able to enter the presence of God. So if the tabernacle is a mini microcosm of heaven and your relationship with God, then you must treat it as so. Therefore, the only thing that can enter and the only thing that can tone is that which is perfect. Does that make sense? This isn't God anti-people with um, physical um, diseases or physical disabilities or that kind of stuff. This is just God dealing honestly with what sin is and what it's done in the world. So you're to take this mail and present it at the entrance. So this is how it works. You bring the animal in that's yours. You're emotionally attached to it. Okay? You don't work with your flocks every single day for hours on end and not become attached to animals. Maybe not as much as your little dog Fluffy, but you're going to be attached. Or your cat for those of you who are weird. You're attached. You come in and it says lay your hands on it, but the Hebrew is actually stronger than that. So you come into the gate that we already talked about in Exodus. Come into the gate. The first thing you see is the altar. You walk off to the right of the altar. You meet the priest. You bring your animal. The priest inspects it for physical deformities. When he cuts the animal open, he's going to then inspect the organs for diseases and deformities. If it's perfect on the outside, but he opens it up and it's got a giant tumor or spots or whatever, then the whole animal is rejected. You've lost the animal. You've got to go out. You've got to find something else. Right? So you bring this animal and that's intentional too, because remember Jesus called the disciples or the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, meaning that they looked really good on the outside, but on the inside of their tomb they were a rotting corpse, and their heart. And so God is showing with the animal sacrifice that He's interested in not only external but internal righteousness and perfection as well. Which means the Pharisees should have gotten it that God was interested in their mind and their internal thoughts just as much as their external behavior, because it was all there in the sacrificial system. So you bring it in, and you lean on the animal. You don't just lay your hands on the ideas. You press into it, and you lean into it. And this is doing two visual demonstrations here. Um, we're going to be a lot more detailed in this sacrifice, but once we go through that, then it, all the other ones are kind of the same pattern. So you lean into it, and it's doing one thing. One is symbolically saying, my sins are flowing from me into this animal. And I'm transferring my sins, like a bank account transfer, into this animal. And so this animal has now become bankrupt spiritually because I have transferred my bankruptcy to it. And so I'm touching it. It becomes physically, I, I cannot ignore that. that. That is not going to be a subconscious thing that I forgot because I'm physically doing something that will remind me why this animal is dying. By leaning into it, I am helping myself feel the weight of this, that I'm literally leaning on this animal as my absolute necessary crutch for my relationship with God. And the weight on that animal as it begins to collapse under me is helping me feel the weight of my sin and what the reality of it is. 
And so this is all. Now, so you do this, then the priest would slice its neck on the north side of the altar, and the blood would be drained out into a bowl. And then the it would be collected, and it would be presented to the worshiper, and that is you who offers the sacrifice. The priest would then say a prayer, and probably what's happening is you're singing a song as you're going to the tabernacle. You're praising God. You're singing songs. You're praising Him as you go into the tabernacle. You're probably humming something. The priest is probably humming something as you're doing this. Then as the, the blood is caught in the bowl, it's lifted up to God, and there's a song and a prayer being said. This is a worship service. You need to think of this as a worship service. And it's a structure. I mean, how many, when you go through the Psalms, pay attention. It says a psalm for as you go to the tabernacle. A psalm for as you're in the tabernacle. I mean, this is the stuff. Now, they're not singing those yet, but some of them might already be crafted that will later make it into the book of Psalms. And so you're doing this and you're worshiping it. No, you're not worshiping it. You're worshiping him. Sorry. So then it is chopped up piece by piece by piece. And the meat is laid with the bones is laid in one pile. The organs is laid in another pile. And the skin is laid in another pile with the fat. And it's laid out and it's inspected. Everything laid out. So then the priest then takes the fat and he burns it on the altar because that's what smells good. If you burn flesh of your hand, it stinks. The question is, why do hamburgers smell so good? Because there's fat in it. Okay? If you burn your hand long enough and get to the fat, well, not your hand, but your arm, your leg, then it'll start smelling good. Don't, don't recommend that. But <laughs> That's why George Foreman grills don't smell or taste as good because a George Foreman grill is designed to drain all that fat out of it. And so the more lean the meat, the less it tastes good. So the fat is what smells good. It's the pleasing aroma that goes up to God. And so what exactly does the pleasing aroma of fat to God mean? We don't really know. Is God up there thinking, oh, I love fat. Give me the bacon. <laughs> Doubt it. Does fat burning have any connection to your faith? Not really. I think the idea is that we just know that that is what makes, when we smell meat cooking, that's what we think, oh, mouth-watering, that's what I want. It's not the flesh, it's the fat. And so God is using metaphorical human words to help us understand how much he appreciates your faith sacrifice to him. As much as your mouth waters for a steak as you smell the fat cook, that's as much as God is pleased and longs for the, the fact that you're, you're, you're demonstrating faith to him. And that's pleasing, and probably even more so because that's just steak. And so the the fat is burnt, and then the end, the the um, then all the rest of it is laid out. The the worshiper would wash the hind legs and the intestines. That's his job, and it would be burned out and burned up. And then the blood would be poured on the altar, and the animal skins would be placed on the altar. The point is, you're losing an entire animal because of sin. The priest and the extremely wealthy have to offer bowls. If you're an everyday normal Israelite, you offer a lamb. And then if you're really poor, you offer turtle doves, which are kind of like pigeons. And so all of this is happening while you're singing. All of this is, like I said, the, probably the closest we have today is buying a new car, at least a $30,000 car, like a truck or something. 
and then taking a sledgehammer and just smashing it. You pull it off the lot, you drive it home, we'll better it. You pull it right off the lot, you drive it right into the church parking lot, and right in front of the pastor, you just smash, 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 and destroy the whole thing. That would be the equivalent to the emotional cost. Because remember, the animals produced milk, they produced wool. I mean, they didn't eat meat very often. So this wasn't a meat source for them like we think of McDonald's. This was a wool source. This was a milk source. This was their livelihood. They made money off of this animal year after year after year after year. You kill an animal, you eat it, that's a one-time gain. You shear it of the wool and you sell the milk, that's a repeated over, over, year, year after year gain. And so this is something that's going to make you money on a yearly basis, and now it's not. And it costs you something to get it. And so you're smashing this. So you have to realize that where we're so used to walking into church and worshiping God by standing there, for them, this is a holistic experience. They're physically involved in their worship. They are holding the bowl as the animal is bleeding out. They're washing the hind legs because when animals get their throat slit, they kind of poop and crap. And so you've got to clean that thing because that's defilement. And so you're there cleaning all the poop off the hind legs of this sacrificed animal. You're involved in this as you're singing songs, and this is your thing that has died. And so this is a very holistic, active participation worship service of repentance. And then we come along in the modern day days and we just say, I'm sorry. And if you are humiliated and you're shamed and you've been caught, that sorry may mean a lot with that shame and that guilt. And you may have done it so many times that now you're suffering for it. But still, we have, it's not like a worship service. It's not a true, authentic connection to God. And the question is, how can we make it that? Okay, one of the things I've try, I'm trying to do with my daughters is you learn this in counseling, if you've ever been in counseling. But to try them to say them, say, I'm sorry for da da da, actually saying it. And I was wrong when I did that. That word wrong is way more powerful than sorry. Sorry can be like, I'm sorry that you got offended. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that we had to go through all this. I'm wrong is all on you. And so the saying wrong, then this is a little harder because I've got passive daughters too. But then I try to get the other daughter to say, when you did this, it made me feel. Not you did this or that kind of stuff, but it made me feel. Then my daughter has to listen to how it made them feel. Now that then really, if the, I kick my foot in the dirt, I have to say sorry because dad made me do it. That tends to go away when they start hearing their daughter say, it made me feel this and this and this and this. Because what they begin to realize after a while is, wow, I felt like that when you did that to me too. Because I think the hardest thing for a kid to grasp is that when they do something to somebody else, they feel exactly what they feel when they're do that thing is being done to them. And I think that's even hard for humans and just in general, especially little kids. And so... <clears throat> Hopefully this is making an I'm sorry more tangible. Not that we're going to bring the dog in and sacrifice it, um, but trying to make it more tangible, more intentional in that process. And so that's all God is doing, is making this very intentional, very thoughtful as they go through this process. So that's the burnt offering. It costs you everything 
and you're physically involved in this as you do this worship. <clears throat> then you would go to the wash basin and wash yourself and remove your defilement. Um, did you say the priest cut the neck? Because in chapter 5, it makes it sound like maybe the person that brought it. Yes. Different animals, different sacrifices. People do different things. Here is most probably, um, probably the worshiper, and I probably misspoke on that. But when it comes to the bull, it's most likely the priest cutting the animal because that's the first animal we're dealing with because the bull is an offering that most of the time only a priest would offer. The only other person that would probably offer a bull is some kind of very wealthy leader in the community because that would be a sacrifice for him. A lamb would not be a sacrificial. So in that case, it would be the priest because the burnt offering is necessary to lay the groundwork for all the other offerings. But as we get to the more general offerings of the lamb, it would be then the worshiper. So kind of a misspoke, kind of a not. It's not a misspoke when we're talking about the priest and the bull, but if we're talking about as a whole, generalistically speaking, then yes, it would be the worshiper. So that then brings us to the all of it. So then we come to this second. Um, the next one is the lamb or bird. So if you're an everyday normal Israelite or a poor one, then you would only offer a lamb. And in this case, then you would slice the neck and you would go through the same procedures. The difference is if you're really poor, then you would sacrifice a pigeon or a turtle dove. And this could be male or female, probably because it might be a little bit harder to figure out which one is which uh, when it comes to the bird. And everything would be burnt except for the skin. Now, we don't know, scholars have made a lot of guesses of why the skin is singled out. Um, and not just this sacrifice. Every sacrifice we come to, the skin just seems to really, I mean, the fat makes sense. The meat makes sense. The organs make But the skin, we don't really know what the, the significance of that is. Um, there's, there's a million different imaginative guesses, um, but it's hard to tell. So, the main characteristic, what is the main characteristic and the main point of a burnt offering? And that is the, um, the whole animal is burnt, except for the skin. And that is thrown um, on the pile. There's a, a, like a not a compost pile, but a burn pile. The point is the sin costs you everything. And as you are actively involved in this sacrifice, you know something significant spiritually is happening. You know that this animal isn't really magically taking away your sins because you've done this a million times. But you know that something significant spiritually is happening because you are holistically involved in this, emotionally, mentally, financially, physically involved in this worship service for the atonement of your sin. Now, a burnt offering was required by the priests to start off the morning sacrifice and it was required to end the evening sacrifice. So every morning, the first sacrifice laid out was a burnt offering of bowls that the priests would offer up on behalf of the nation to kind of prime the altar for the individual offerings that would primarily be 
turtle doves and pigeons and lambs that would come throughout the day. And then the night would be closed with another pole offering to on behalf of the nation. So you have to realize every single day, the day is begun and end on behalf of the nation with a burnt offering. And everything else is in between. Now here's the thing. All the details that God laid out, the one thing that he did not mention was how frequently to offer this thing up. He told you how frequently the priests were to do it for their own purity and for the nation to prime the pump, so to speak. But he never, ever, ever once says how often the individual person must offer up a burnt offering. And really how often you do it has everything to do with how guilty you feel and how much you love God. Think about even today. Has God said that repentance of your sins through Christ and the Holy Spirit are absolutely necessary to have a relationship with God? But did he tell you how often you should repent? Do you repent for every little sin? That might be a little hard (laughs) considering how frequently we sin practically every second on some things. Or do you wait for them to build up? Do you do it three times a day like you eat? The question really is your personality, how much you feel guilty, and how much you love God, and how serious of offense you feel like that sin is to you and other people. And all the details, the one thing that God is not going to regulate is your heart. He can tell you how to repent, And he can specifically regulate the motions you go through. But he is not going to regulate your faith in your heart and your love. Because he wants you to want to. And it should matter to you enough to do it. And it's kind of like your spouse or your friend saying, if you really love me, this is my love language. And I would really like it if I got it this frequently or something like that. But your friend cannot sit on you and make you do it that frequently and make you do it that way. And if they had to sit on you, that would make your act of love totally not genuine. Like the the only reason you're doing it is because you feel like you have to and because I'm making you or I'm nagging you to death. You can tell your friends what love looks like to you. You can tell them how much you need it, but you can't make them do it. And you can't make them want to. And nor should you. Because then it's not authentic. So then the question is, if your friend really loves you, then they'll do it to the best of their ability. Remember, because we're flawed. And that's where love covers a multitude of sins. Where you at least say, okay, I need it at least four times a day, but I only got three. But they tried very hard and they meant it. So that matters. Okay, so that's what God is doing here. So remember, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. And he knows why you're doing it. And that's what he will not regulate. Does that make sense? How did Christ fulfill this? Well, this becomes obvious. This is the easiest one. By the fact that he was completely consumed on the cross. That he died completely. And his body was buried completely. And the eternal God of the eternal universe died and was separated from God in his entirety, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, trinity. 
He was completely cut off from God. And God sacrificed Christ in his entirety on your behalf. And to sacrifice his own son, a member of the Trinity, all you need to do that once. Because remember, when an eternal God dies, it's an eternal death. So it's almost as if he's doing it all the time. And I don't know how that one works because I'm not outside dimensions. I just know it does. So Christ fulfills this. And therefore now you and I don't have to do this. This one's the easy one. The sacrificial system is the easiest one when it comes to the law. You and I don't have to do this anymore because Christ, according to Hebrews, died once and for all as an eternal sacrifice for all sins and all people. To re-crucify Christ is to insult God, to say that Christ's death is not, uh, not sufficient to pay for our sins. The Catholic Church re-crucifies them on a regular basis of the Mass. What they're saying is, his death the first time was not sufficient to pay for all the sins, so we have to keep doing it over and over and over again. That's an insult to Christ. To go back to an animal sacrifice is an insult to Christ, because now you're saying that the divine God of the entire universe, who is human, who is able to represent me and conquer death, was not good enough, I still need to do an animal sacrifice. Now, there have been there was one time that we did do an animal sacrifice at our camp one year, but it wasn't because we were believing that that was necessary for repentance. We did it to help illustrate what a sacrifice really was so that they could better appreciate Christ. Right now, I'm trying to help you feel that as I go through what it's like. But for those kids who have never grown up on a farm and they've never killed an animal and they got attached to the animal and then we killed it and they watched it all happen, it became very powerful to them of what was involved here and helped them helpfully grasp Christ more. But once again, the whole point of the sacrificial system was to point to Christ as the one who was only sufficient. Therefore, even if we did it in the woods with these campers, the whole point was to help them grace, and better appreciate Christ. And so in that sense, to go pre-crucify Christ or go back to an animal is a complete insult to Christ and what he was capable of doing. And so in this sense, he completely fulfilled the entire sacrificial system in this way. Does that make sense? Are there any questions? So from, from what I see it is this. So from the... From the sacrificial point where we're sacrificing the animal, I can see how each person at that time was giving up the animal, the animal they loved, they cost them something. The first question that came to my mind as I heard you explain this is like, what cost me for Jesus to die, to die for me on the cross? Absolutely nothing. So it's like, wow. And that's the whole point. But at the same time, this is the whole point of grace. You hit it right there. First of all, grace is not free. Grace costs somebody something. It's a free gift to you, but that doesn't mean that grace was free. Because it costs Christ everything to offer you the free gift. Just like Christmas. Your kids might be getting a free gift from you, but you probably spent months saving up for this thing, especially if it's something they really want. And it costs you a lot. So yes, for us, it's now free. 
because I'm not offering up my own sacrifice because I can't do it. And so this is where Christ goes over and beyond the sacrificial system. But at the same time, because he's giving up his life for you, see, I'm giving up my own animal's life for myself. So I'm the one that loses. But now Christ is giving up his life for you, which means he now owns you. And this is the point that the, the second testament is going to go into is now Romans says you are to present your body as, as a living sacrifice for this is your spiritual act of worship. So no, it doesn't cost me anything, but now I'm then expected to serve him. And just like Exodus, he freed me from bondage to a corrupt Pharaoh to bring me into bondage to God and Yahweh to serve him. Therefore, Christ brought me out of bondage for sin and death that I could not do through his own death and resurrection, but he's now bringing me into bondage into serving him. And so now I then respond and say, oh, how great a love that you had for me that you were willing to do this. I can't help but want to give you everything out of love and serve you. And so now what costs me is not that I, it costs me to atone for my sins because I can't do it or because I have to do it. Now what costs me is I am so um, thankful and so indebted and so in love with a God that would do this. I want to freely give to him and give him everything now. And so, yes, great point. Thank you very much. That's the burnt offering.